3: Considered one of the leading experts into the Roswell UFO crash of 1947, Kevin has written more than 25 books about UFOs, including the recently published Roswell in the 21st century. Now, here is the host of A Different Perspective, Kevin Randall.
4: Hello once again. We're back with A Different Perspective, as you... Well, no. For those of you waiting to hear Brad Steiger, and we had planned to do a Halloween spooktacular, which is a term that we both absolutely hated and were making fun of, uh, Brad came down with the flu and is unavailable to us. Fortunately, I was able to prevail on Ray Stanford to come on the program today rather than when we had him scheduled in a couple of weeks. Uh, Ray Stanford. For those of you who do, do not know, is the man who is credited writing literally the book on the uh, Socorro UFO landing, which is a Socorro saucer in a Pentagon Pentagon pantry. And he describes his investigation into that landing case and his interactions with the various participants, such as Lonnie Zamora, the police officers from Socorro, uh, Alan Hynek, who was the Air Force consultant, and some of the Air Force personnel and, and military personnel who were investigated that as well. He also is a pioneer in using optical and electric instruments uh, to successfully obtain propulsion diagnostic evidence of what he now terms anomalous aerial objects, which we, <laughs> we laymen call UFOs. And in the mid-1970s and the 1980s, he was able to document in the field multi, multi-witness UFO sightings and obtained high-resolution images uh, during some of his investigations. What I find absolutely fascinating here, he is the only person in UFO studies and research who has discovered and documented a new species of dinosaur. I will attempt to pronounce it, and I'm sure he'll correct me if I get it wrong. It is a Propanoplosaurus merilandicus, and it's on display in the Smithsonian Museum of Natural History. He found the dinosaur inside the Washington, D.C. beltway, and apparently the astronomers at the Goddard Space Flight Center or whatever the name of that place there in Washington is, had been walking over it for years. So uh, that is kind of an interesting thing, and is the only armored dinosaur hatching ever reported, hatchling, hatching, hatchling reported in the uh, United States or in the eastern part of the United States. He has provided uh, a number of links to scientific papers uh, to give you more information about this. And unfortunately, they're very long and very complicated, which do not work well on the radio. But I'll put them up at my blog, www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com, as soon as we have the link to the program up. So those of you who are interested in following up on that research uh, can do that. So I would like to take this time to welcome Ray Stanford to the program. Welcome, Ray Stanford, to the program.
2: Well, hi, Kevin. It's nice to be here.
4: <laughs> That's all you have to say after all That's that That's all long I it, have to say. <laughs> and and the pronunciation of your dinosaur, did I get that even close?
2: Not quite. It, it's Propanoplosaurus marylandicus. Okay.
4: Well, <laughs> there you go. My Latin is lousy. What can I tell you about it? Uh, as I mentioned earlier, you were the... Uh, you may be the only living investigator who was originally at the site of the Socorro UFO landing back in April of 1964. And when I had Ben Moss and Tony Angiola on the program a few weeks ago, we had talked a lot about the landing, of course, at length. And he mentioned uh, a photograph that you had taken of uh, a Socorro-like object uh, several months later. Could you tell me a little bit about that?
2: Okay. Uh- that uh, should be taken with great uh, deal of, of caution. Uh, what it was, simply, uh, after the events described in my Socorro book uh, uh, involving um, the zinc-iron alloy scraped onto uh, a rock in the Northwest Landing Gear imprint, uh, after the events happened at Goddard Space Flight Center involving that, described there, uh, we went out, uh, Bob McGarry and I drove on out, uh, going back to Phoenix, our homes. Uh, we, uh, we drove by Socorro. And on the 26th of August, uh, uh, I had an appointment to see Lonnie Zamora on, uh, at 2 o'clock when he got off duty. And so we, uh, we simply uh, uh, decided the best thing to do to spend the time before Lonnie was off duty was to go to the site and try to make some measurements uh, of magnetic deviation. Uh, we didn't have a, a good instrument at that time, so we just used a compass. And using it at a given distance from each plate of the steel dynamite shack, we recorded how many degrees and what direction it veered the compass which probably has no scientific utility but we did it anyway And uh, uh,
4: Ray, I have to interrupt you because we're going to have to take a break here I know this, seg- this first segment is very short and I spend a lot of the time talking about it but we will be back with Ray Sanford right after this uh, talking about the photograph that he took and a little bit more about the Socorro casing we will return after these brief messages
0: Shamanism is recognized as a method to access the quantum level. Mastery of shamanic skills puts spiritual information and healing power into your hands. Path Home Shamanic Art School, a bonded Colorado-certified occupational school, has met rigorous state standards ensuring its director and instructors have the qualifications to teach the shamanic arts. Path Home offers a certification program in blocks of study. Block 1, a five-day intensive, will be held in the beautiful mountain town of Coaldale, Colorado, October 13th through 18th. Registration deadline is September 12th. Experience journey trance, power animals, helping spirits, sacred space, and life purpose. Come discover your power. Join me, Gwilda Weyaka, in the magical world of shamanism. Call 303-775-3431 or visit findyourpathhome.com.
4: And we are back with uh, my guest, Ray Sanford. Sanford, I'm sorry, Ray Stanford. There's a Sanford's in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, and that confuses me for a moment. Ray Stanford, who uh, is the man that literally wrote the book on the Socorro UFO landing. And when we went away, we were talking about a photograph that he had taken near the dynamite shack that Lonnie Zamora had uh, been heading toward when he when he saw the landed craft. And you were saying that you had been taking measurements... Uh, magnetic yes. measurements uh in the area at the time uh doing some work in preparation for meeting um Lonnie Zamora so when I interrupted you who were taking your measurements so let's go let's go from there
2: okay uh I decided well I noticed on the front of the dynamite shack's metal door there was uh, the ownership of it and, uh, and where they were from so I took a picture of the dynamite shack hopefully showing that door with for size reference uh my uh, friend was with me uh, standing beside it and uh, this is the picture that uh, that Tony might have been talking to you about. Uh, I really wish people wouldn't talk about it until we have something more definite. The thing was that um, uh, years later, here uh, I heard a report on the internet, someone asking for who owned the Dynamite Shack, and I pulled an eight by ten photograph out of my old Sequoia file uh, to uh, to try to see if I could read the the writing that was done in in um, metal on the door, telling who owned it. And when I did, I, I was kind of astonished to see that back on the western horizon, there was something that if it was real in the sky, certainly uh, neither Bob McGarry nor I who were there
0: saw Thank you. You're welcome, sweetie. Have a good day. So saw- the demand for healthcare care professionals who deliver both comfort and critical care is growing. FindNursingSchools.com
5: connected me with an accelerated Bachelor's of Nursing degree program in my area with expanded capacity so I could complete the program in 16 months. Now I'm on the path to an
0: in-demand career that offers job stability, flexible schedules, competitive pay, and the choice of where to work. Visit findnursingschools.com to begin your journey today.
1: The we're going family style deal
0: because I want a bite of your Big Mac
1: and I need some of your quarter pound. I'll
5: try your fillet fish.
1: There's a deal for every friend group at McDonald's. Order any two classics for just six bucks. Price of participation may vary. Single item at regular price cannot be combined with any other offer.
2: Oh, anything? Of course, we weren't looking. We were just there to measure the down my shack and get on to meet Lonnie some more at two o'clock. So, anyway, in the picture, it shows several objects. On the the far left, it shows a thing that looks like it could be the Zucaro object. Uh, with the ends not pointed right toward you, but off to one side, and uh, with with no landing gear. But on the near the the far right side, there's something that looks <laughs> spookily uh, like a photograph of uh, the object with its landing gear out, very much like drawn in my Socorro book, uh, landed. But here uh, in the air, and you see what looks like a landing gear and and the object, and then off in the distance, there's three objects that could far away look like they could be disk and in between the things I've just described. There's way back there something looks like someone with uh, imagination might say it was a, a mothership back there. But um, uh, I am dubious of photographs in which people don't see anything uh, because um, the other day I had experience of uh, of thinking something odd was in one of my photographs uh, there at Secora, another one of them. And when I got back to the uh, the, the first-generation print, I found out that all the prints on the the roll of film, uh, all the prints made from the roll of film, had the same things in the sky. That was it was crud on the uh, the uh, glass template that the negative was uh, against when they they printed it. So I, I want to say that uh, even though this may look to people like I got a photograph of the core object, for now I I, I simply I can't believe it. I, you know, I look at it and I'd love to believe it, but I have to be objective. So I'm trying to. I've got all these files with a lot more important things since the Socorro event, so I hadn't paid attention to these files in years. But somewhere in the files, I've got the original negative and the original first-generation photograph, and I can compare the negative to the print of the photograph and the ones adjacent to it on the film and see if these are really optical images. Uh, But uh, even if they are, it still, in my opinion, would have to be downrated quite a bit because it was nothing seen. We don't know what's out there, and we know the human tendency i give you an example. I'm a, I'm a dinosaur track researcher, and uh, you'd be surprised at things that people bring me on rocks that they think are dinosaur tracks. Uh, just because something has a superficial resemblance to something doesn't mean it is, but our human mind, it to be something, will turn it into it. So I say, uh, uh, I'm going to hold off on saying that I've got anything important photographically. Uh, There at the Socorro site, because uh, I need to get to the original negative and see if it's a real optical image. If it is, I'll take it more seriously. But even then, the case would have the the problem that uh, we didn't notice anything. But again, everything in the picture is within one half degree of the western horizon. And uh, when you're out and thinking UFOs, and we weren't really thinking that they would come over that day, you're probably not looking within a half degree of the horizon. You're looking up higher in the sky. But anyway, we didn't see anything. So that's the story. There are a lot more interesting aspects to this, the Coral case, and evidences that have not yet been brought forth that uh, that but, may but uh, hold you, a lot more importance.
4: But what you're saying is Tony and Ben may have been a little bit more enthusiastic about the photograph than you are.
2: Yes, uh, they, they, you know, they haven't been on this so many years to see Uh, How you have to be extremely cautious, and uh, I'd say that's uh, that that they you know they see it and and wow, this looks like Ray has photographed the object. But I, at this point, uh, I wouldn't say so at all.
4: Oh, so it kind of cleared up the the picture uh, problem then. I I noticed when talking to both uh, Ben and Tony on the on the radio a couple of weeks ago that they were very excited about the case and they seemed to be very level-headed and very cautious about many, many things. But this happens to be one of the things they may have been a little bit more enthusiastic for than than you would like them to have been.
2: Right. I mean, after all, I took, I took the picture, and, uh, uh, well, we'll see. Within the next few weeks, if I get time, away from my work related to dandosaurs and mammal tracks, I, I will... Uh, I'll try to get back to it and and we'll solve the mystery of whether the photograph at least shows optical images or whether it's an artifact of some sort.
4: Okay, that's good. Uh, Talking to them also, they had kind of made the case that Lonnie Zamora never said he had seen beings or creatures or aliens or things, but he he talked about just seeing white coveralls down there by the craft. And I noticed in your book that it seems that uh, Lonnie had been somewhat more specific in what he had seen, that there were that, that that there was, and I, I hesitate to use the term alien creatures, but there were uh, humanoids down there—things pe- uh, yes. with heads and hands and feet and that sort of thing. Is that correct?
2: Right. Let me say that if they if they're saying that, I'm going to have to get onto them because uh, that is not the case at all. In fact, Lonnie Zamora. Uh, Kind of laughed at the fact that that he you know that Heinic was saying at his news conference on the twenty ninth of April uh, that uh, he had he had said well you know he only described something you know like uh, you know some kind of uh, white coverall maybe like it would be hanging on a line or something no uh, let me explain that uh, ironically just before that uh, media conference in which Heinic was interviewed by Walter Schroeder, of Radio KSRC uh I had been at the site with Lonnie Zamora. Sergeant Sam Chavez and uh, and Heinick. and uh, Heinick stood right there, and we talked about what Lonnie saw, and he described them not as coveralls. He described them as small figures, and and I said Lonnie, how uh, do you have any idea what size these figures were? Now he was objective. You know, he didn't say people. He said figures. But he was clear that these were animate things, not just coveralls. He said they looked like they were wearing white coveralls. Okay, I asked him if he had any idea of size, and he said yes. He said, now the one that turned, he said one of them turned his head around and looked like he had probably heard the the car coming up the hill in the gravel or something, turned around and looked as he topped the hill, and he said, this figure looks startled. Well, coveralls don't look startled. (laughs) Yeah, I
4: I wondered about that because I'd seen that in a lot of descriptions where they they reacted to the presence of Lonnie Zamora there, and I wondered uh, how do
2: white coveralls react? Yeah, that's a good question. Now, uh, as, as we talked, and I said, well, you know, he put his hand up beside a certain branch that was sticking out of the creosote bush that was just on the north side of the northwest landing gear. And he said, the head came right about to here. And uh, I said, well, that that's really uh, pretty small. How would you characterize him in, in human terms? He said, well, you know, it was it was about the size of a 10-year-old kid. And then that's not very big. So he was definitely not describing just coveralls. He said they were wearing what looked like white coveralls. But Heineck heard him, absolutely heard him describe them as figures and that jumped and that were wearing what looked like white coveralls and then one's head, his head, his head jerking and turning. And he described exactly, he put his hand right there on the bush where he saw his head. And Zamora was a good, uh, talented observer and had good memory about observations. I could go into reason how we know this. But anyway... When we got, ironically, when we got to the media conference, within 20 minutes after this conversation, in which Heineck stood right there and heard all of this, he, he said that the Moore had never described anything to him about seeing any figures, that he described something that that might have resembled white coveralls. Right there with me in the room, who had stood right there with him. And Lonnie Zamora describing this.
4: Well, in fairness to Ben and Tony, I may have must misunderstood what they were saying, but it was my impression they were saying that Lonnie had never talked about anything other than the white coveralls. And I also noticed in going back through the Project Blue Book file on this, that Heinick's uh, report, his first report in the Blue Book files, mentions nothing, absolutely nothing about seeing any creatures or any figures or anything like that at all. He skipped over that completely.
2: Yes, he skipped over a lot of things. For example, in his report, uh, we, when we came back up out of the ravine in preparation to going to the media conference, um, when we got up to the top, uh, he uh, Alan Heineck asked uh, Zamora to go through exactly what happened when he pulled up there. Now, the police car that was there belonged to the state police, Sergeant Sam Chavez's car, uh, the state police, and uh, Zamora pointed out that he had pulled, that he had, Heineck had asked him to put the car exactly where he had pulled his. Now, contrary to anything you will see in the Air Force reports, any of them, the car was 50 feet from the center of the landing quadrangle. And uh, Zamora talked about how he knocked his microphone out, picked it up, and stepped out of the car, and he took three steps toward the device that was sitting in the ravine. Now, keep in mind that he had his glasses on. And this object was in the vicinity, let's say, 18 to uh, maybe around 18 feet long. And he's only, when he got three feet, three steps, he was taking big steps, he said. He, he, he was really, uh, he was in a state of wonderment. But he could plainly see the, the red so-called insignia, whatever you want to call it, on the side. He could see that there were landing gear. And all of a sudden, there was a terrible roar that at first he thought was an explosion. Uh, In response to this, having been trained in the military, he flew to the ground, turned his head in the opposite direction of the object, and uh, he showed us exactly where he hit the ground. And in my Socorro book, we have a very accurate, detailed drawing of exactly how he showed us he he was on the ground. Now, Heineck does not mention that. His feet were 35 feet from the center of the object uh, as it's projected onto the ground beneath it. Uh, where the uh, so-called exhaust and takeoff, uh, so-called well, flame would have have been that close, and it's not mentioned at all in the report. So the the report either he- well Heineck uh, was an extremely absent-minded person, but uh, if that's all due to absent-mindedness, I'm surprised because these are s- very important features when you talk about uh, figures that reacted and a uh, sharp figures. I think that Heinek was probably fully conscious of the fact that some that it had been recommended to Lonnie Zamora by uh FBI agent Arthur Burns. That, well wait, let's uh, let's let's he,
4: let's, he, let's clarify that. You say recommended to him and I think it was uh, Captain Holder yeah. who recommended him not describe the no. the symbol. Yeah right. But but right, but the, the point is it was it was recommended as opposed to ordered. He was not that's correct.
2: That's I mean, correct. so important distinction let's not switch the subject Kevin we're talking about not the symbol we're talking about what he was told by FBI agent Arthur Burns about recommended about the the actual uh, occupants and their size see now that's that's the thing he didn't tell him you you can't describe these little characters they said uh, in effect he said well you know if you talk about seeing these little figures beside this thing people are going to laugh at you and make fun of you which they did he was right but I don't believe, quite frankly, that, that, that Lonnie's welfare was really what was at heart in making that comment. After all, this particular thing that he saw small figures takes it out of the realm of a black project craft because black project craft are made to be operated by normal sized people and you don't build them to be tested by midgets.
4: Well, um, we're going to have to uh, take a short break here. Wasn't trying to change the subject. Wanted to clarify that one point about the...
1: Uh, the we're going family style deal.
5: Because I want a bite of your Big Mac.
1: And I need some of your quarter Pond. I'll
5: try your filet of fish
1: There's a deal for every friend group at McDonald's. Order any two classics for just six bucks. Price of participation may vary. Single item at regular price cannot be combined with any other offer.
4: Uh, recommendations to it. We will be back with Ray Stanford... Uh, author of Socorro Saucer in the Pentagon Pantry and talking about the Socorro Landing and some other things right after this.
2: I ask for your help to continue this important work by donating at www.HolisticCancerFoundation.com And
4: we are back with Ray Stanford talking about Socorro uh, in in, in detail here. uh, Ray having been or is the only living uh, uh, investigator who was on the site right after Zamora's sighting in the days that followed it, talking about his measurements, what he saw, what Lonnie Zamora and uh, Sam Chavez, uh, who was a state police sergeant at the time, uh, the first person that Lonnie Zamora talked to about this. And we were talking about... um, FBI agent Burns, who, by the way, in I noticed in the, the reports in the Project Blue Book file, got a little ahead of myself there, the reports in the Project Blue Book file that uh, Burns had asked uh, Holder, not to mention that the FBI was there. And I, I've seen that in other cases where the the FBI has said, we're not really here, we're, we're doing something else. <laughs> so anyhow, these guys were making recommendations, really not lo- ordering Lonnie Zamora to do something, but suggesting ways of handling this. And had suggested that he not mention the uh, small beings, the small things that he had seen, simply because it would lead to ridicule. And I th- I think what you were saying at the time when we took our break there was that that is exactly what happened. There were people who were less than kind to Lonnie Zamora about seeing these, uh, and I'll just call them alien creatures for the lack of a better term right now, these alien creatures. So that was so. Uh, Alani had seen the the uh, creatures. He was told not to talk about it. We're now at the press conference with Heinic in the room. I, I think it's his hotel room, from what you said in your book. Right. You're in there. Um, the reporters in there. Heinic mentions absolutely nothing about the alien creatures.
2: Uh, that's that's right. He merely was willing to talk about that. Zamora said he saw something resembling white coveralls, <laughs> two of them standing behind beside the, the object in the ravine, and one of them reacting as if it were startled. At that, that that would be a good one for Halloween, wouldn't it? So
4: he's um, I, I I I really don't understand Hynek's response there simply because of, there's other cases in the Blue Book files where they talk about alien creatures, and he doesn't seem to be that flummoxed by them um but but i i like i said in his report i mean it sort of confirms what you're saying there in his report to the air force he mentions nothing about that he talks about other things but he doesn't talk about about the alien beings the alien creatures did he give you a uh, 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 Descriptions of, like, facial features or anything no, like that? Footwear. He said he,
2: he, could not, he could not see facial features, but he you know he could see the head and, and see the upper part of the body and the head kind of look around and jerk, you know, like it was startled. He just said he couldn't see any facial features, and he couldn't tell whether it had any headgear on or not. But he, he could see the heads. But keep in mind that this was just as he topped the uh, the rise after three attempts to get up at hitting the gas so hard that he was spinning in the gravel and not making progress until the third time got to the top and this was literally this observation i don't believe lasted more than a very few seconds because he was anxious to get over there to it and the the, the, the dirt tracks dropped down to the right in the north before you could go over further west. And so he lost sight of it. So it was a very brief observation.
4: And it was through the windshield of the car. He's no, in the car. It was, so it was, the...
2: He saw it through the open window of the car. Open
4: window, okay.
2: Yeah, because he was turning the car right to go north where the tracks went, and that, that window was open. His windows had been open. That's one of the things that enabled him to hear the roar of that flame he saw in the sky that was coming down that caused him to go in that direction. The windows of his car were, in fact, down and
4: that was that was one of the other things um, we 've always looked at this as sort of a single witness case you know it 's Lonnie Zamora seeing this thing, and that 's it and As I was going through the blue book files, and I noticed the same thing in in your book, uh, Richard um, Holder reported that the police officers uh, the dispatcher in the Sequra police station, had mentioned that they had gotten three telephone calls about a blue flame in the sky, and I mentioned this because because Ben. Moss and Tony Angiola had mentioned the, these things, and I had asked him at the time, did you um, check the, the police logs? And I didn't, never really got an answer from them on that, and we kind of moved on from that. But going through that, we, you know, we find Holder's report talking about that. So even though it clearly was not mentioned in the logs, the uh, police officers there told Holder and others that three people had called in. So it's it's... Uh, Sort of not a a single witness case simply because we have that report. Unfortunately, we don't know who those people are. Nobody bothered to take names or phone numbers or write it down.
2: Let me mention, though, that uh, uh, let me add a visual witness. Uh, uh, Sergeant Sam Chavez of the New Mexico State Police, the late Sam Chavez. uh, All the policemen in Socorro that knew him knew that he, when Lonnie called and he told Lonnie to ask him to come alone, even though others heard it and, and followed. The first one was uh, was uh, uh, New Mexico State Policeman uh, Tad V. Jordan, along with Undersheriff James Luckey. But, uh, but uh, Chavez was the first to arrive, and while he was approaching the site, not yet at the site, he observed the object in the sky. He did not want this known. He thought probably the rest of his life that this was some kind of a black project craft. He couldn't believe that there were any little... Creatures beside it that maybe he knew Zamora could be trusted, but he thought, you know, maybe he had misobserved their size. But he saw this, but it wasn't close up. He saw it way up in the sky where it was uh, kind of an unknown view, circular, as as you can imagine the way it flew away to the west. And Chavez is approaching from the east, basically, and it's going on up in the sky. It was way up there of small angular size, but he definitely did see it. And it was moving at a at a substantial clip when he saw it, according to what he told uh, the policeman friends of his. Now that's there's a visual witness. And then uh, Walter Schrode and I went into a, a a restaurant bar there in Socorro on the night of the twenty I guess the twenty of uh, of April, nineteen sixty four. And we were sitting in there, and of course everybody in town knew who Walter Schroed was, at the radio station. So two women there uh, saw him and started talking about the case. And uh, they said that um, while they didn't see it, they clearly heard it. And what they described, I mean, there's no question if you'd heard them, that they were utterly sincere. If they were hoax in the first place, they would have said they saw it. But both of them were taking care of their normal duties, whatever they do in their homes. They live in two different places. And uh, each of them heard a terrible roar. And then it stopped. But then, you know, a minute or so later, however long it was, they heard another roar. Well, their natural presumption was that maybe something had been launched from white sands, and they were hearing a lot of noise from some kind of a launch or something related to white sands, so they didn't look out. But they both said they heard it and that the timing and the spacing between the first roar and the second roar were commensurate with Lonnie Zamora's description uh, of the timing of the events. So there we had two auditory witnesses uh, right there. Uh, let me also say that, uh, I found the testimony and I have an affidavit in my book from Opal grinder. Uh, uh, and not only that, I talked to his son who also witnessed it. Let me mention that, uh, as some of the books say, there was, there was a witness in the car that stopped there. There was, there were four witnesses. I'm sorry. There were
4: five, uh, apparently a husband and wife and, and three sons, three sons,
2: and, and there were three sons, and uh, these people, let me point out two things that most people haven't realized. They not only saw Zamora head over in that direction, they saw Chavez's car with lights flashing. Zamora's was not light flashing. He was just following the speeder. He wasn't chasing him. But Chavez was in a hurry because of the call to Zamora. Zamora thought maybe there had been a, a car overturned in the ravine. So he didn't wait till after he got to the site and the thing took off. No, he radioed Chavez when he thought that this might have been a some kind of a white car or something down the ravine, it turned over, and that the the little figures might have been some kids. You know, maybe their parents are caught inside or something. So Chavez is rushing out there with his lights flashing, and the witnesses saw that. Uh, they were actually a, quite a bit further south than most people realize uh, when this happened, uh, because they said that they were uh, right alongside a uh, what they described as a trash dump, something of that effect, so uh anyway uh grinder and his son sounded uh, very credible and uh uh it was right at the, the end of well it was right at the end of the day and his wife was rushing out to the bank for the day's deposit but uh they they were fascinated by what they heard but they didn't realize what was being described because Zamora's case had not become public knowledge
4: well the, and and the problem here is we don't know who the people were in the car no. we have it second hand from opal grinder and i have no reason to doubt that he was telling the truth as he knew it but we we don't know who those people were and it's interesting that with all the publicity of the sighting especially in april of 1964 i mean this was this was in the newspapers around the country i think it was even broadcast on the the uh, network news broadcast that those people never came forward to mention that they had seen this thing flying over the highway.
2: I don't think that's puzzling at all. Uh, people are, because of the ridicule factor, people are extremely. Keep in mind that if they come out after the report is out and say this, uh, then they're they're backing up the story that that from the policeman's standpoint, from Lonnie's standpoint, it's a lot more incredible. Occupants were seen and so forth, and they've got three young boys. You think about well, at school, what are they going to say? Hey, man, you seen little green men? They say the same thing they said to Lonnie. the The, the kids in that town persecuted poor Lonnie. He, he got off the police force. He didn't like the, being there in the blue uniform and having them drive by and say, "Hey, seen any little green men lately?" So he, he took a job uh, managing a service station on the south side of town for a while until he took another job uh, just to to get rid out of get to get out of the scene. And I can understand parents with three young kids that uh, might like to talk about this, but don't want to drag the media uh, feeding frenzy uh, in on it.
4: Well, that's that's a a good point. But but now we're uh, 52 years later, and we still don't have a clue as to who those people are. So unfortunately, I mean, it's an interesting story, but it does little to underscore um, or to support what... Yeah, I think of the same thing. Did uh, Sergeant Chavez ever... Produce a written document about what he had seen. Oh no, even though...
2: he would not dare have done so. This would draw attention to the case. Uh, he didn't want people investigating it. He truly, really thought that this was a black project craft. He, he just really was didn't uh, could entertain any idea that that UFOs might be something exotic coming from somewhere else. He was that kind of a very practical. Uh, call him a level-headed man, but he was skeptical. And uh, he did not – he only confided it to his fellows in blue, and that was it. And they uh, they confided it to me, but it, I, I honored him. I, did, I know he would not want it out, and I, I, I'm one who, if somebody talks in privacy, I believe in keeping it that way unless they say you have permission. And uh, I knew that Chavez could, would not possibly have granted permission, the fact that he saw it. Furthermore, he only saw a round object going away at high speed in the sky – which is commensurate with Zamora's final description of the observation, but that doesn't confirm the amazing things that Lonnie reported on the ground.
4: No, but it helps underscore what uh, he had oh, seen sure because here's another, ob- here's somebody else that saw something in the in the sky, and I, you know I understand uh, Chavez not wanting to get dragged into this, especially when you read about some of the things that Lonnie Zamora had gone through. You know I get that as well. I'm merely saying that if you look at this as the devil's advocate, uh, we have. A report that Chavez may have seen the thing, but there's no way to really confirm it. We have the witnesses that Opal Grinder saw uh, talked to, but we have no names for that. The, the two ladies uh, who heard the thing, again, we're in the same boat with that. We don't know who they are, so we can't get their perspective even though it's 50 years later. So, I mean, well, those me say are kind of that problems.
2: That scientifically, that kind of stuff doesn't matter at least in the context of of the viewpoint of the uh, establishment the scientific establishment about this you've got to have hard evidence may i talk for a minute about some possible hard evidence that we may if, have on this?
4: Y- yes let's do that right after this because we've got to take another short break here and we'll talk about that and i wanted to talk a little bit about project starlight international i think that may okay. be where you're going with the hard evidence so we will come back uh, in just a few moments with Ray Stanford talking about uh, UFOs and those sorts of things. And we will have on my blog, www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com, a couple of links to uh, the scientific papers that uh, Ray has produced about his dinosaur discovery. We will be back. And we are back with Ray Stanford talking much longer about the Socorro case than I had originally intended, but uh, there's so much information about this case and it's such an interesting case. It sort of demands that we spend some time on it. When we went away, uh, Ray was going to talk to us about some physical evidence. I'm not sure if he was relating to the Socorro case and other things that he's done. He is... uh, one of the men behind Project Starlight International, which was an attempt to document through instrumentality and uh, and uh, photographic means, uh, UFO sightings. So we've try to get to that. But uh, you mentioned some physical evidence, Ray. So uh, I thought you could expand on that.
2: Well, uh, I could talk about some possible physical evidence in the Zocoro case. Okay. I'm trying to make this brief. Uh one of the occasions in which uh, I revisited the landing site, um, the uh, rocks were still around the area where the landing gear had been, and so you could determine, and the, the relics of the the bush that had been partially disintegrated by the so-called exhaust flame. Uh, when we went there, I could tell where that was, and so what I did, I simply dug down about three and a half, four inches, uh, maybe four and a half inches, from that spot, and found a. Typical volcanic rock of the type that you see a lot of around Socorro it's, it's what's called a non-eruptive, but it is of magmatic origin. And uh, I found this rock It's uh, about uh, about four and a half inches uh, maximum dimension. But the reason I picked it up was because it places on its surface it has a, a kind of an odd, almost translucent-looking greenish material, totally uncharacteristic of rocks of that type. And uh, I suddenly... Uh, had a, a a Bureau of Large Land Management person collect from a around 85 pounds of control rocks of the same type for study and comparison. There's nothing like that on them. But this had this green material, and then when we got to looking at it under a binocular microscope, we noticed that uh, it appears that certain of the larger crystals, the quartz crystals in it, may have been melted. And uh, of course, in in the magmatic condition, it's not an eruptive. Under underneath them in the volcanic chamber, as it's cooling, you get these crystals growing, and they freeze. So they should be crystal shaped, but uh, on the surfaces of this, it looks like. And I, I, that's a cautionary term because this can be misleading, but uh, it looks as though these. Crystals at places, at least, and maybe at most of the places, have melted and beat it up. When you, when you melt a crystal, it, it will have a surface tension, and it will beat up if it's, if it's, uh, if it's melted uh, enough. And it looks kind of that way. Well, let me go back to when Heineken and I were at the site uh, on Tuesday, the 29th of uh, 1964. Uh, right in the area where the landing exhaust had played and landing and takeoff, uh, right beside the half disintegrated uh, creosote bush, there was a little piece of uh, of uh, rock that was uh, not the type of rock that's native at all to that site. It must have washed down from from the mountains uh, years ago but um, it uh, it's about let's see I'd say it's about four point five centimeters across and uh, I, when I picked it up, I thought, well, I'll just take it for study in case it has any odd features to it, magnetic or otherwise. And I noticed a black spot on it in my notes that I made right at the, the landing site. I said, I wonder if uh, something from the burned bush or, or something else that the exhaust burned left a charcoal <laughs> on the, the surface. This is what it turns out. It wasn't charcoal at all. It's, it's uh, part of the rock, an area in the ancient history of the rock somewhere it had it had gone under stress and you had chalcedony commonly called agate that had grown in a a curved uh, fissure there had had filled had it up and uh, right in the center of it there's some micro crystals that can be seen normally the chalcedony is is we, we need uh,
4: we need to talk about the metal fragments that you found because we're we're getting short on time here
2: well this may be more important uh the thing is that this appears, and other crystals in it do appear to be melted. And I'm preparing to have tests done. And if, in fact, they were melted, when we put a light stream through them, they will uh, be what what is called isotropic. If they're still crystal, they will refract light in two directions. It's called birefringent. If they are isotropic, then the Socorro case is a whole new ballgame because it will suggest that whatever was driving that exhaust that did not bounce off the surface could not have been even a plasma engine, it must have been subatomic particles traveling at the speed of light, thus with great mass, producing thrust. If so, it takes a magnetic pulse driver, and it would suggest that some of the crystals oscillated and heated up. If that's the case, this this is better evidence than anything that's been associated with the Zagoro case. Now, as to the metal itself, um, Chavez, I'm sorry, Zamora said, as we were about to leave, gosh, i never noticed this before, he pointed out a place on the rock adjacent to where the landing gear had come down, the Northwest landing gear, input, uh, that he said looked like it had been broken or scraped by the landing gear. And uh, ironically, Heineken just said, uh, yes, uh, uh, I guess uh, a heavy object to do that. He didn't ask himself, wait a minute. <laughs> Could there be anything scraped on this? But I did. So we rushed off to the press conference, and when he left and was carted off to uh, Albuquerque by the uh, uh, Major Connor of U.S. Air Force and Public Information Office in Albuquerque, uh, I went back to the site, and I had photographed that location with the rock in it at eight twenty something that morning, and uh, before I'd ever gone back out with Chavez and, and Zamora and Hiding, and uh, so I had a picture of it before, and then I took a picture of it after I removed it from the site. You can see the hole where I removed it, and much to my amazement, uh, there were where the the rock had been scraped by the landing gear. Uh, there were little flex of metal and there was one with a little rolled up sliver and uh, uh, now ultimately when I got back to Phoenix uh, there was a medical doctor friend of mine that was wanting to see this and I handed it to him and he, he got a hold of it where the sliver was knocked it off in the grass and despite using a big magnet we, we couldn't find it but anyway the rest of them were, were still there and uh, at the suggestion of, of Richard Hall of uh, the NICAP we took this to the uh, uh, Goddard Space Flight Center and and uh, in the space uh, materials uh, uh, section, there uh, it was uh, analyzed, and they t- they promised to take only half the metal, and that we could go to lunch and they'd come back and we'd, give it- we'd get it back with half the metal on it, and they would keep the rest of it to submit- to subject to radiation over the weekend, and then use X-ray diffraction tests to determine what it was. Well, when we got back, I almost lost my teeth. Had I been able to, I probably would, <laughs> because if I had false teeth because my jaw dropped. They had taken all the metal off the rock. And uh, that left me very upset and Hall said, "Oh not don't, don't make a scene don't make a scene well I had I felt like making a scene but didn't and uh, but in in anyway uh, Dr. Henry Frankel was the man in charge there and uh, he uh, drew to his word uh, he had me call him on one Wednesday uh, the following and or was it Tuesday I'd have to check the book <laughs> and uh, he uh, he said, Ray, you know you'll find this interesting um, that was on the law of zinc and iron that according to our charts of all the laws, produced, or charts of all alloys produced on the earth, and we have very complete charts, there's no such alloy produced. And he said, so, you know, it could lend itself to the interpretation, wouldn't prove it, but it does lend itself to the interpretation that this might have had an extraterrestrial origin. He actually said that. He said, there's just a few little traces there that we don't know what they were, but uh, we're going to do some tests, some further tests, and we'll let you know. But Sutton's going to need to make a long story short. There was a cover-up. They came back and claimed, oh, it was all a big mistake. Now, now, Frankel didn't tell me this. I don't think he wanted to. I think he had to get a flunky to do that. Uh, somebody under him, I will say. And uh, another person named in the book called me and said, "Oh, it was all a mistake." Well, I checked. I immediately called the head of the department of chemistry at Elmore College in Corpus Christi, where I was uh, after I'd come back from from Goddard and uh, where my parents lived. And uh, he said that such a mistake could not be made. And and that that. Uh, that pretty well settled to me that I hadn't been told the truth. But Dr. Heinick asked several major people in analysis whether that mistake was possible. They told him no, and he said, Ray, you know what? If I were you—now, this was after he was free of the Air Force after 1969. But he said, if I were you, I would just accept the original statement. And by the way, Hynek uh, went and liked my book, and he went over to uh, the Man Space Flight Center uh, back in the days when John Schuster was there, and I learned this from John. He actually donated a copy of my Socorro book to the technical library of the manned space flight center, uh, outside Houston.
4: So they have a copy of the book. If the case, they want additional information.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's, that's right. Well, they, they do if, <laughs> if, if it's still there.
4: And that kind of brings up a question. We've mentioned the book several times, a Socorro saucer in a Pentagon in the Pentagon pantry. If someone wants to get a hold of the book, how do they do that?
2: Okay. If they want to buy the book, I have, uh, thanks to the, the publisher who's, who's deceased, but he, uh, he left me uh, several boxes of brand-new—they were printed in 1976, but they're brand-new condition—the hardcover with the dust jacket, brand-new-looking, and the original first edition. And uh, if somebody wants that signed by me, what they can do, they can go to PayPal and pay me—it's it's $50 plus $10 for shipping— and uh, sixty dollars total. And pay it to to Race Stanford at PayPal. They I I'm listed as either Dinosaur Tracker at Verizon.net or race standard thirty eight at gmail dot com. I don't know which, they could try either and see which one works. But uh we can I can provide you with that later. You could put it up on your blog if you like. But they can do that and I'll get it to them right away once I get the payment from PayPal. I will uh send it to them by priority mail uh, with tracking. I'll even send them an email uh, telling them uh, the tracking number in case they want to keep track of it. So they can do that. The book is selling elsewhere. Believe it or not, I'm shocked, but it has sold. Some copies of it are sold for over $400, old beat-up copies. and uh, But this is personally signed by me, and it's the brand-new first edition from 1976.
4: Well, Ray, I'd like to thank you for taking your time to be with us today. I think we also thank Tana, uh, Ben and Tony of uh, MUFON VA, that's Virginia, for uh, kind of getting us together to uh, talk about these sort of things. I appreciate sparking,
2: that. They're, they're good guys, by the way. Uh,
4: sparking my interest in the Socorro case, and so they've done a lot of good work. I certainly appreciate you taking your time with us today. And as we said, we'll be up uh, in a couple of days with the information on my blog at KevinRandall.Blogspot.com so that you'll have an idea of how to get a hold of some of these Papers that uh, Ray has done, or how to get a hold of his book if you want a copy of that. We will be back next week with uh, a new interview. I'm hoping that we'll have a member who was uh, a man who was a member of the Project Blue Book staff to talk to us about what went on there. So that's all we have for today. Thank you for listening, and we will be back in 167 hours.